I have a secret. I wore the wrong foundation for years. Then I discovered Il Maquillage, the boldest new brand in beauty. With 20,000 five-star reviews and 50 shades of flawless coverage, their Woke Up Like This foundation is a bestseller for a reason. It's tough buying foundation online, but their Power Match quiz matched me perfectly. And with Try Before You Buy, you can try your shade free for 14 days. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. This week, ancient teeth found in China force scientists to rethink migration. Maybe there's not only one out of Africa, there are several out of Africa's. And neuroscientists thought they knew everything about the nematode worm. It's the only organism that has a fully described connectivity map of the nervous system. But it turns out the map needs an update. Plus, what the Paris Climate Talks can learn from the science of cooperation. This is The Nature Podcast for October the 15th, 2015. I'm Adam Levy. Few animals have been more intensely studied than the worm Kenorhabditis elegans, or C. elegans, to its friends. It was the first animal to have its genome completely sequenced, and every single one of its nerve cells has been mapped. Well, almost every one. Scientists have discovered two new neurons lurking in the head of the male worm. Appropriately, the team named them Mystery Cells of the Male. Then they took all the mystery out of them by finding out exactly what they do and where they come from. I went down to a lab at University College London to meet two of the team who found the mystery cells, neuroscientists Richard Poole and Arancha Barrios. Richard first. Canorhabditis elegans is uh, a nematode worm that was first used for neuroscience in the 60s. It was uh, Sidney Brenner who decided to work on the worm. And he chose to work on them because they have a complicated enough nervous system to have really interesting behaviours, but uh, a simple enough nervous system to be able to understand it in depth. We know a, a lot about its neuronal circuitry as well, don't we? More than any other animal, potentially. That's right. It's the only organism to date that has a fully described connectivity map of the nervous system. So we know to which neurons every neuron connects to. Every single worm has the same number of neurons. That's what it's remarkable about, about C. elegans. And hermaphrodites have 302 neurons. And the male was thought to have 383 until we found the mystery cells. And now we know that they are 385. Now, as you hinted, Arantxa, um the number of neurons in the male has just changed. You guys have been the ones to change that, and there are now two more than we thought there were. Can we go to the lab and, and look at these worms? Sure. So it's got a microscope. So you've got your little plate where you mounted the worms under a microscope here that's connected to this screen. This is the tip of the nose, and this is the pharynx. Neurons mostly come up to that region. Back a little bit from the nose in the main, start in the main body. Yeah, and you can see in the hermaphrodite, you know, there, there is nothing labeled um, at the front of the nerve ring. So this is a male, and we are looking at the same region. It's so obvious. Here in the male, there are these two bright blobs yes, where there was exactly. nothing in the hermaphrodite. They look like two lollipops sticking out. So they are really striking. I'm going to ask you some more questions. I might wait till we're out of the slightly noisier lab because I have a lot of things to ask you about this now. <laughs> We've just come back from seeing these alarmingly bright neurons. 
right, or cells at least, in the head of the male, which weren't there in the hermaphrodite. This is the world's best studied animal. Arancha, what's going on? Why did no one see these before? Not many people work on the male. That's a, a starting point. Um, it was mainly concentrated on the tail because it's the most obvious dimorphism. And yeah, I was the first one to work on the neuropeptide that labels these cells so brightly and so obviously in the male. So um, this is a compound that uh, some cells produce, others don't, and it's kind of a hallmark of the neuronal cells. Yeah, neuropeptides are mainly expressed by neurons, but then we looked at a whole battery of neuronal markers, and indeed they are neurons. And then you tried to find out what they do. Yes, exactly. The fact that they were you know, placed in the head and they appeared at sexual maturation and they were absent in the hermaphrodite suggested to me that they may, they may be involved in remodeling uh, common circuits, sensory circuits. And indeed, we tested sexual conditioning, which was a, a behavior that had already been established uh, to, to happen in males. And, and there, there we found their function. So these neurons, basically, are helping the males prioritize sex over food. Yes. And, and yeah, it, it seems like an effective way of locating mates. Um, Richard, you've been looking, you're particularly interested in where on earth these neurons come from, how they, I suppose, got where they are, what they develop out of. Um, what can you tell me about what you know of their origin, I suppose? That was obviously the next most important question, right? When you discover new cells in a worm, you need to figure out what they do and where they come from. And so, surprisingly, um, we found that they actually develop from what are called glial cells. So glial cells, they make up about 50% of the human brain, so they're the, the non-neuronal part of your brain. And previously we used to think, people generally thought they were just the glue they were providing support for neurons, but over the more recent years it's become obvious that actually they can act as neural stem cells, so they can actually divide and, and produce neurons. Um, so it's the first real example of a glial cell making a neuron in an invertebrate. However, we do know the last 10 to 15 years has taught us that uh, that does happen in the human brain and in higher vertebrates. And so now we have a perfect system going forward to try and understand this process uh, in more detail in the worm. What does it mean for neuroscientists and perhaps for people listening who aren't even neuroscientists that, you know, there are these two extra neurons now? People were very sceptical in the worm and outside the worm <laughs> communities when we, were, when we started talking to our colleagues about finding new neurons in the worm. Are people having to go back to their circuit boards, drawing boards? Yeah, I think so. You know, in terms of thinking about how, how the behaviours might be controlled in the worm, yes, once you have two new cells, you have to maybe sort of rethink about the circuits. But I think uh, the other interesting thing is I think uh, in the sort of broader picture, um, it gets at this question of how how do men and women behave and think differently, right? And so, um, or men and hermaphrodites. Yes, in this or case. men and hermaphrodites <laughs> in this case. But you know, we we always wonder how well, do we have different learning aptitudes? Do or is it social? And in this particular case, it happens to be genetic. Finally, how will you be celebrating the publication of your paper? Your joint corresponding authors, uh, and you're also I found out before this interview you're a couple as well. Uh, have you been out for dinner yet to celebrate? We've been drinking at every stage of the process, <laughs> actually. <laughs> every, every piece of news that, you know, the paper was moving forward, <laughs> we've been celebrating. That was the happy couple collaborators Arantxa Barrios and Richard Poole. And if you want to find out more about this tiny worm, read the paper at nature.com slash nature. 
Or if you want to study the worm's anatomy but don't have a microscope, there's an app called Open Worm. I reckon it's going to be the new Angry Birds. Now, just before we move on, a little favour to ask you. Tell us more about yourselves, please. Our podcast hosting platform, Acast, are running a listener survey of the Nature Podcast. The survey takes only five minutes to complete, and by entering, you could win £200 worth of Amazon vouchers. The address of the survey is www.podcast-survey.com. It works on mobiles, and rest assured, none of your personal information will be shared. Your email address will only be used to tell you if you've won the prize. You'll be helping us out too. We can make our shows even better if we know more about you. Once again, that link is podcast-survey.com. Our species, Homo sapiens, emerged in Africa around 200,000 years ago before conquering the rest of the globe. Researchers digging up a cave in southern China have discovered an important relic, 47 teeth that look very much like those of people alive today. But at 100,000 years old, the teeth could force researchers to reconsider when and how humans colonised the world. Reporter Ewan Calloway travelled to University College London to speak with team member and tooth expert Maria Martinon Torres, who saw the chompers on a recent visit to China. So last October, in one of our usual visits to China, we have the possibility to see at the lab the Dauxian teeth. These fossils have been found inside a cave. It's about 47 human teeth that have been found together with a large sample of, of mammal fossils. What did you, as, as a tooth specialist, what did you think when you saw these teeth? Well, we saw these teeth and it was very clear that they belonged to Homo sapiens. And that is important because not always the taxonomical attribution, which species fossils belong to, is clear. In this case, for us, it was very clear that they were Homo sapiens and that they were very similar to modern human populations. You've got some pictures of the teeth right there. Why don't, well, could you explain to me what... What makes them so clearly the teeth of Homo sapiens and not, say, a Neanderthal? Well, I can show you, uh, when we look at the Dauxian teeth first time, we really found they're very small. But it's not only about the size. In this case, also, the morphology is very simple. You can see it in both the crown and the root. The root tends to be very thin, very simple, narrows towards the end. There is no any complication. And particularly the crowns, I tend to say that Homo sapiens are quite boring. They don't really have anything like Baroque or expressive. You know, they tend to be very simple. They don't have this suit of things that we tend to love to find on teeth, at least personally, but in this case, they are very simple. So boring modern human teeth with what I understand is a very not boring age. Tell us about the age of these teeth. They really look modern, but they are very old. And they are very old. Also, particularly, we take into account they have been found in China. These teeth have a range of age between 80 to 120,000 years. And that is very early for the time being or for the place we are talking about or what was expected to be found at that time in China. What does the really old age of these teeth tell you uh, about human evolution? Let's say that the classic hypothesis or the model that was most generally accepted by everybody is that modern humans left Africa only 50,000 years ago. In this case, we are saying that indeed sapiens is out of Africa much earlier. 
So that really has many different implications. Suddenly we have, they left earlier, they're really expanding through an area we thought they were not before. And we are interested now in understanding what does this mean? What's the origin of these populations and what is also the fate? Did they vanish, disappear? Can be their ancestors of later and actual populations that enter Europe, for example. So now I would say that the Dauxian samples are like the starting point now for a very interesting debate and hypothesis to test. We know that modern humans are really out of Africa. Some people are really now have to reconsider models. Maybe there's not only one out of Africa, there are several out of Africa. So the hominids may have been really leaving Africa in different movements and migrations. And also we have to understand what happened in Asia. These populations, did they really evolve also for a while outside Africa? So I think there is a lot of new questions that now we need to try to answer to whether they're with other type of evidence like genetic molecular evidence and of course keep finding more fossils. So. You've got modern humans in China 100,000 years ago or so. But based on what I know, modern humans don't get to Europe until 45, 50,000 years ago. Why is that? Well, I think this is an open question. Indeed, as you say, if Homo sapiens was able of expanding through Asia like about 100,000 years, why is it that modern humans that were already at the gates of Europe, they didn't really get into Europe? The classic idea is that really sapiens enters in Europe about 50,000 years and they really take over the Neanderthal empire. However, we think that maybe they did not really enter Europe indeed because Neanderthals were there and Neanderthals were a sort of ecological barrier and Europe was such a small place for the two of them. So maybe Homo sapiens could not really enter Europe until indeed Neanderthals were already on their decline. A lot of the really exciting discoveries are happening in Asia. You know, we had the, the hobbits, those little kind of dwarf people from an Indonesian island 10 years ago, a few years ago. We had the Denisovans, these mysterious creatures from, from a cave in, in Siberia. And, and now you've got modern humans living 100,000 years ago in China. Should we expect a lot more surprises coming out of Asia? Yeah, definitely. I think that Asia is the unknown land. The samples are amazing. They are wide, they are variable, and I think in the next years we're going to have surprises because indeed they have a lot to say not only about Asian story, but about the very main stories we have been talking about human evolution. That was Maria Martinon-Torres speaking with reporter Ewan Calloway. Coming up in the news chat, tackling the grand challenges of cancer. But first it's time for the research highlights with Sharmani Bundel. What would you do given a supercomputer and 10 years? Well, scientists at the Blue Brain Project have simulated a piece of rat brain as big as a grain of sand. It contains over 30,000 virtual brain cells and millions of connections between them. The team used data from experiments as the basis of their model. Then they tested that it responded like a real brain section to simulated input, such as the movement of a whisker. The ultimate goal is to model the human brain in a supercomputer, but that will take at least 100,000 times more memory. Find the paper in Cell. And now, the weather forecast, brought to you by a flock of vultures. Scientists studied GPS data from four tagged griffon vultures as they flew over southern France. The location of the birds was taken every three seconds. Using knowledge of how birds move in flight, the team could pin down wind speed and direction just as accurately as weather stations on the ground. 
Since GPS equipment is getting smaller and lighter, bird forecasts could be very useful, especially in remote areas. That result is in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society. In December, world leaders will be gathering in Paris, not for the Christmas markets, but to finally make a deal to cut carbon dioxide emissions and so limit global warming. They're likely to make a deal that has two steps. One, countries pledge how much they plan to limit their emissions by. Step two, the international community reviews the pledges to assess if they're up to scratch, serving as a kind of global peer pressure. The hope is that this pressure would encourage everyone to strengthen their pledges over time and ultimately limit the world's temperature increase. Unfortunately, we think the science of cooperation shows that this is wishful thinking. This is David Mackay from the University of Cambridge. David worked for five years advising the UK government on climate and energy and has written a comment piece in this week's Nature urging leaders to base their deals on the science of cooperation. Actually, if people make individual uh, contributions, it's in their natural self-interest to to hold back from what would be in the global common interest. If all you're doing is offering how much of the cake you're going to eat and you like cake, then uh, you will naturally, in your self-interest, want to eat a little bit more cake than the the fair amount. That is the fundamental problem of climate change. People do benefit from burning fossil fuels. So how do we deal with this in a world where everyone does want to eat cake or emit carbon? Well, there's really good news. We're optimistic that actually it is possible to design an international agreement such that self-interested countries will take strong climate change action. The key idea is to have reciprocity, and that means an I-will-if-you-will commitment. If all countries were to agree to have the same carbon price as each other, then countries that care about climate change action would actually be happy to advocate a high carbon price because they would know that it would be a common carbon price that would apply to other countries as well as themselves. A good example of this is actually income taxes. Um, You could imagine two ways of raising money to pay for hospitals and roads and the things that people want to have. You could have voluntary income tax, where everyone just chooses their own tax rate and puts it in a pot and maybe publishes how much uh, they paid. If you did that, then you can imagine what would happen. Most people would say, ah, well, I can choose to pay just 1% tax, so I'll do that instead of paying 30%. And you'd end up with very little money for your hospitals and your roads and so forth. But what we do instead is we have a common commitment. We know that there's a common formula that applies to everyone and they are happy to pay tax at 30% because they know everyone else will be paying the same. So what does a carbon price actually look like? Say that a carbon price is introduced in the UK, does that mean every time I buy a a lump of coal, there's a minimum price I have to pay to buy that lump of coal. Yes, we already actually have uh, taxes on fossil fuels in the UK. So when you use electricity, you're paying uh, taxes for your use of gas and coal that amount to about £100 per tonne of of carbon dioxide. So in the UK, we already have taxes you can view as carbon taxes. And the idea of the global carbon price commitment is that all countries would commit to having an average price for carbon emissions in their economy that would match the globally agreed price. 
Is this not something that has been suggested before in various contexts? Most of the attention for the last couple of decades, they tried to come up with a formula for defining what each country's emissions could be uh, over time. And if you try to set caps on emissions, then you're quite likely to find out, whoops, I set the cap a bit too high or a bit too low, which means that your effective price on carbon is going to end up collapsing or becoming extremely high so that people wouldn't tolerate it. Uh, And there hasn't been any attention in the international negotiations paid to an approach where countries are negotiating over what a common carbon price would be. If we think of setting a price on carbon as like setting a tax limit, then surely in some senses it's just setting the same tax on all countries, rich or poor. What we suggest as a way to fix this problem, the the difference between uh, developing countries and developed countries, is to couple the global carbon price to what's called the Green Climate Fund. It's a way of transferring money from the rich to the poor. And our suggestion is, again, that that reciprocity is the key. What you want to do is you want to incentivise developing countries to support a high carbon price. And you say, well, we will if you will. We will transfer more money through the Green Climate Fund if you agree to a higher carbon price. As an academic who's had personally interactions with government. How optimistic are you that this kind of advice will get listened to and absorbed in the negotiations in Paris? All of the authors of our paper, we have tried repeatedly to get people who are involved in international negotiations to to listen. Uh, We've been trying for quite a while. There's lots of positive talk about the pledges for Paris, but we believe if you look in detail at what is actually being pledged by many of these countries, they're actually pledging to do what they would have done anyway under business as usual. So uh, I I would love to be able to be more positive, but uh, sadly uh, our prediction is that Paris is not going to lead to an outcome that actually take successful climate change action. Successful climate change action is actually very difficult because what's required by climate science is that the emissions rate must drop to zero. So we're not just talking about people reducing their fossil fuel use by 20% or 50%. Actually, the emissions rate has to drop to zero. We're talking about 100% cuts. And fossil fuels are such an attractive resource. That's a, a, a difficult ask. That was David Mackay trying to find a way to wean us off fossil fuels. Read his comment at nature.com forward slash news. Time now for the news chat and Heidi Ledford joins us on the line from Boston. Well, your story this week is about cancer's grand challenges. Now, Cancer Research UK, who are a big UK-based cancer charity, as their name suggests, they have just announced on the 12th of October a giant chunk of funding. Uh, How much and what for? So it's going to be at least £100 million, and it's going to a special program that they've set up called Grand Challenges in Cancer Biology. And um, what they've done is selected seven Grand Challenges. Um, they range a bit. Some of them are quite basic research-oriented. Some of them are a little bit more towards the clinical side. Um, but what they're doing is they're taking applications from people to decide which team of researchers they will support for for each of these grand challenges. So each team would get uh, up to £20 million for at least five years of work. £100 million in the first instance, that is a massive chunk of cash. I mean, to compare it to, for example, Obama's Big Brain Initiative, that was $100 million at the time that was announced. Is this a lot of CRUK's budget? 
It is quite large. If you look at last year, for example, they gave out uh, close to 400 million pounds um, for cancer research. This is supposed to be this 100 million pounds is supposed to be on top of that. So they're they're continuing to fund as as they normally do. Um, but in addition, they're going to add this Grand Challenges program. And the, this term Grand Challenges is one I think we're hearing a lot more uh, in all different fields of science. Why is this sort of a, a different way of funding uh, cancer research than we're perhaps used to? Well, certainly it's new for Cancer Research UK. And it's true, you hear Grand Challenges coming up everywhere. I mean, everyone wants to sort of brand their latest program as a Grand Challenge program. Um, people find it very inspiring, I think, to have something presented as a challenge. Um, and I think it also sort of reflects um, a, another trend that, that we've talked about quite a bit lately at Nature, which is um, the trend towards interdisciplinary research. So they, they like the idea of assembling teams that cross different disciplines and having them really work together to try to solve a specific problem. Could you give us a couple of examples of grand challenges that they're hoping to address? Yes, so there are seven of them that, that, that they've picked out, um, and they've, they've sort of designed them to be very, very difficult, but also doable, is the hope. Um, so they have some, for example, that are quite basic, uh, sort of basic research, and that would be, you know, an example of that would be um, a challenge to find a way to understand the molecular topography of a tumor, so to understand all of the cells in the tumor, why are they there, what are they doing, um, you know, how might they contribute to resistance to a therapy, for example, or susceptibility to a therapy, um, that sort of thing. So that's sort of a basic research question, but one that you could really imagine would have uh, some impact on the clinic. One that's a bit more clinical would be um, they have another grand challenge to try to eradicate cancers that are caused by a virus called Epstein-Barr virus. Um, and that's one that, I, you know, I think hasn't really gotten a lot of attention uh, particularly in the media, but it's uh, it's the cause. You know, Epstein-Barr virus causes something along the lines of 200,000 cancers a year, um, particularly particularly in some regions of Asia, um, and and so they have a challenge to to try to wipe this out and maybe to build on some of the success that we've seen with HPV, for example, the, um, another virus that contributes to cancer, certain cancers. Now, Cancer Research UK often fund pretty basic science as far as charities go anyway. Do you think this is really going to make as big a difference as they hope or are they just going to end up funding the same stuff in a different guise? Well, we'll have to wait and see. That's an excellent question. Um, I think probably it's going to take a little while to figure out whether or not this is going to be more effective. But I do, I do, I have to say I do like the focus of these challenges because they, even though they, some of them do have a, a strong basic research component to them, they do have this clear trajectory, you know, to making an impact on the clinic. It's making biology a bit more like astronomy, if you'll bear with me while I stretch this analogy to breaking point. You know, there we have very uh, obvious endpoints to our missions. We go to Pluto or we go and land on a comet and then the whole thing's done. And here as well, we set a question or a challenge and then we can actually tick it off is the hope. That's exactly right, to give you sort of an endpoint to say, aha, we have accomplished it. And not only does that give you something to strive for as a researcher, but it also gives the public a point at which they can say, wow, they've done it, you know, as opposed to just publishing another paper, um, you know, with some alphabet soup of different protein and gene names, and, and the public maybe has a hard time grasping the importance of that. But here you can sort of draw a line in the sand and say, okay, make it to this point, and you have succeeded. So how about these other Grand Challenge programs that there are? How successful have they been? Well, the so the key example that everyone is sort of building on is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Public Health Grand Challenges that they did, they issued, I think it was 2003 when those came out. 
Um, and that program is still going on. You know, they'll add challenges here and there, and they've made a lot of grants. Quite a few of those challenges have been fulfilled. Um, there are still some that are lingering, and there were some that became irrelevant over time. That's the one that a lot of people look at. And I, I think, by and large, that one is considered a success. OK, Heidi, thanks very much. For more on that story, head to nature.com news. And if you still haven't had your fill of science news, make sure you check out the Nature Video channel at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. We're very proud to have just hit 25 million views. And we'd love to know which video is your favourite. Let us know on podcast at nature.com or tweet at us, Nature Podcast. That's all from us this week. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Listener.